BHL listeners. Uh, this is the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and we are extremely excited today to be at the beautiful Cosmosphere in Hutchinson, Kansas. My guest today is Mimi Meredith, who's one of the head cheerleaders, amongst other titles, for the Cosmosphere. Um, a lot of our listeners have probably been here. For those that haven't, uh, you are missing out on an extraordinary opportunity. And we're here today to learn all about what this treasure offers, uh, not only visitors, but students and professionals, uh, and what it contributes to the scientific community. It really is uh, just an amazing story located right here in South Central Kansas. And uh, Mimi has been kind enough to agree to join us today to tell us more about it. Mimi, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. It's a, a privilege. And you're right, I do love telling the story. Yeah, it's a great story to tell. It really is. And uh, uh, a brief shout out to uh, a friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Our Mimi and I's relationship started through a mutual friend, uh, Mr. Denny Steckline. He yes. was a subject of a prior podcast. And the good news is there's no question you're going to perform better than Denny did. Oh, on, there you go. But one of our favorite mutual reprobate friends, Mr. Yes, Steckline. Yes. Well, let's dive in. Um, Mimi, before we get into the story of the podcast, which is, or the story of the Cosmosphere, I should say, which is just extraordinary, um, give us a little bit of the background on you, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, and and paint uh, what the path from your childhood to your time here at the Cosmosphere looked like. Oh, goodness. You know, it's interesting. You and I were visiting uh, before we started just about how you really never know what path you'll follow as a young person or what path your child might follow. And I'm sure that my parents never dreamt that I'd wind up in Kansas. I was born and raised in Montana and um, thought that I would be, I went to school in Nevada, Missouri initially, a two-year liberal arts college for women called Cotty College. And Can I interrupt you just long enough uh-huh. to ask, how does one grow up in Montana and then make the decision to go to school in Missouri? Right. With just 350 students on the campus, my mom and two of my sisters had also um, attended there. Okay. And it's just, um, was a great foundation in that student body of 350. When I was there, there were over 40 states represented in 14 foreign countries. So it was great exposure to the world. And it was at that time just a associate's degree. So then you'd go on to another university or could. And my goal was to go on to the University of Oregon because my life plan was to live in the Pacific Northwest near that beautiful coast in Lincoln Beach. And here I am in Hutchinson, Kansas. Where so. did uh, where did your Pacific Northwest dream get hijacked and bring you to our great state of Kansas? Well, with my husband, I met my husband. My dad never did quite fathom all of this, but I met my <laughs> husband and got engaged while I was at a women's college. And so then I chose uh, um, to go to the University of Kansas. And Very good. Because, Rock chalk. Yes. And... My professors at Cotty strongly encouraged me to choose KU because I was pursuing a journalism degree. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and it was a fabulous education, and I was a non-traditional student. So um, my friends that are that bleed crimson and blue have a really hard time with the fact that I never went to the Hawk. Serious? I know. See? Okay, that's the reaction I get. It's just a bar. Oh, it's not just a I bar. Know. <laughs> I did go to Johnny's Tavern. That reminded me more of Montana, I guess. But I was a, a non-traditional student in the sense that for most of my time there, I was married and commuting from Topeka, where my husband was at law school. Right. But yes. So I, and I was there when Danny Manning played 
for yeah for Larry Brown and I never went to a game I had an all sports ticket because my dad said you've got to get an all sports ticket and I went to two football games oh at my KU gosh. and no basketball so really oh I know I'm a failure yeah you did you truly <laughs> did not uh, uh grasp the full Jayhawk experience I didn't although I'll say the the hawk is probably not the optimal environment for married people but you know it's uh it is an institution How right funny right. well before we get in um to the the cosmosphere itself last question i guess for you is uh how did you then find your way to the cosmosphere and would ask the question was it more of a uh, you found the job or did the job find you i think that it was both you know i i lived in we moved to hutchinson after my husband graduated from law school and lived here for 13 years and during that time i worked in other um, positions in the community and had the good fortune to know Patty Carey, which was a gift, but just thought the Cosmosphere is great. My kids came here for youth programs, and then we moved to Phoenix for 12 years. And so when I came back from Phoenix, I was asked to be on the Cosmosphere board, which just a totally different phase of life. Now, you know, most of our children are adults, and, and, um, I just have always loved the place. I've, uh, I think, valued the fact that it's here more than initially I valued what it is. And my husband is someone we would affectionately call um, in our inside our head voices. Of course, we'd never say this out loud to mm-hmm. anyone, but we call him space geeks. Uh-huh. He just he's all about space, and he has been since he was a little boy. And so I understood through his passion of uh, the early manned space programs he can tell you anything about the mercury gemini or apollo era and so some of that may be sunk in through osmosis but when the position opened up here and i had been able to see what i thought it could be from a board perspective combined with i've always been in this profession in Mm -hmm. marketing and development and i i just decided to throw my hat in and really it was at the very last minute and it's one of the only decisions that I've ever really ardently prayed over and gotten other people to because I always think God's too busy for stuff like what job should I take but it was so clear to me the morning that I decided to go ahead and apply that this is what I was supposed to do well and I sort of flippantly Mm -hmm. said earlier I'm here with Mimi Meredith one of the head cheerleaders for the Cosmosphere (laughs) because you have so much passion for it I, I think you know, you are one of the greatest ambassadors, but uh, in fairness, tell listeners your official title here. Oh, at, uh, <laughs> my official title. We have to do something about my official title. It's ridiculously long. <laughs> I, uh, I am the Senior Vice President of Development and the Chief Development Officer. Well, there you go. That so, is appropriately long. Yes. Well, let's move into the Cosmosphere itself, because mm-hmm. what a story this is. And you actually set us up perfectly with a segue when you mentioned Patty Carey. Mm-hmm. Some of our listeners may know this story, but I would guess that a lot of them don't, or if they ever did, it's been a very long time. This amazing, driven woman that really had the the genius and the drive to start this thing. Where do you even start with the Patty Carey story? Right. Well, I think you have to start with the context of now. What are we? We are a museum in the heart of the heartland that happens to have the largest combined collection of U.S. and Soviet-era space artifacts 
in the world. I feel like that needs to echo. World, world. It does. Yes. Yeah. It's that you have to let that sink in because in, it's hard in to understand. In Kansas. Right. We not have, Chicago. Right. Not Dallas. Exactly. And people just cannot wrap their mind around that, that we have the, the only museum in the United States that has a more significant collection of space artifacts than the Cosmosphere is the National Air and Space Museum, which is run by the Smithsonian, obviously. We're a Smithsonian affiliate. Um, the only place with more soviet era or russian artifacts than we have is in moscow so you can come to the cosmosphere and see the story of the space race unfold you, you can see the um, contrast between what the soviets were doing with their technology and their culture and compare that to the united states so is that part of i want to come back and drill down a little bit more mm -hmm. on the origins and patty carey mm -hmm. tell us how big was her vision when it started? Exactly. So the thing that people ask when they finally discover it is, why is it here? This doesn't make any sense to me. And it's because she had a passion, first and foremost, for astronomy and, and helping people understand their place in the universe. And so in 1962, she, well, and let me back up even further. It's important to know that Patty Brooks Carey was a highly educated woman who married um, Jake Carey and his family had Carey salt. Hutchinson is on top of three huge salt mines. And so I, I think that it bears noting that she was already an influencer in the community. And I would like to think anybody could do this, but in reality, it happened because it was Patty Carey doing it. So she convinced the state fair to let her use the poultry building. If those of your listeners who may not be familiar, the Kansas State Fair is also in Hutchinson, and the poultry building is a large brick building. It, we say it all began in a chicken coop, but that, <laughs> that really... It sounds more dramatic that way. It does, and it sounds really hokey, <laughs> um, because we still have her star um, projector. She bought a used um, Spitz star projector to project the stars on the ceiling of the poultry building, rented folding chairs, and set up a planetarium because it was so important to her. And then the stories of people she recruited to help, everyone just volunteered their time. She um, talked to Bob Martindale, a local attorney, and said, Bob, I want you to give lectures to people um, on astronomy. I want you to help students. And he said, I don't know anything about it. She said, well, you'll have to read some books, Bob. <laughs> and he had no intention of saying yes, but he did. It was very hard to say no to Patty. And um, we have some volunteers with us today who were originally her volunteers on the fairgrounds. I have a friend whose dad ran the projector. Um, That's amazing. It really was a community effort, but it was one person's passion. And her passion was, I think the space race was just beginning. And she wanted to keep abreast of that. And then she hired the right person in the first CEO who had connections to getting artifacts and together they grew it but it continued to be patty's passion so how does that sales pitch work you're this first ceo or patty mm -hmm. and you are determined to get some incredibly highly sought after artifacts mm -hmm. things that are very rare have not only scientific but political significance mm -hmm. and you pick up the phone from here in hutchinson kansas and you're occupying a brick poultry building <laughs> How, how did they sell that? How right. did they start to collect these things? Well, first, we had moved from the poultry building to the campus of Hutchinson Community College. 
1966, and so Patty had an actual dome for her planetarium, which is now where people go to see Dr. Goddard's lab shows. So um, they did have a small facility. The way that it all began was through um, Max Airy had a significant understanding of space history, and he would watch for government auctions because the Apollo era had ended. We were all about the space shuttle. Um, NASA had moved on, and so they'd have warehouses full of things that we consider artifacts, and quite honestly, now so does NASA. NASA has moved past And they past were auctioning them off. Right, in big, in big lots. And so Max would know the model numbers. And I think it's fascinating to know that he knew exactly what he was looking for, and that's how he had 80% of the parts that belonged in Apollo 13 before we even had the command module here. Wow. And I'll confess to have just learned something new right then. I just assumed all of these things were, you know, awarded, so to speak, like the government had always seen the value of all of them and only, a, you know, a museum and an mm-hmm. educational institution could apply. It never You're- occurred to me they had an auction where they threw open the warehouse door and you could go in and bid and buy some of these things. Right. There are still some things like that that happen occasionally that made their way to the private sector. I don't know that the government does that in exactly the same way anymore. Um, but I do know that the Smithsonian still has the first right of refusal for uh, any space artifact. But at the, at the, Was that true at the time? The Smithsonian? I believe or so. Was our, it just more of a, hey, these are extra parts and we're just selling them off? No. Well, yes. I don't think that they were looking for... The Smithsonian had the exact same opportunities we did. I don't know that that's how they got all of their amazing collection. But um, I think that the other piece, the Soviet piece, came from the right contacts. And the uh, Russia was in... Uh, a situation with its economy that it needed to sell those things. So some of them were purchased. Some of them were awarded, so to speak. We have the Liberty Bill 7 that we own in our collection. We, Max, put together the effort to to retrieve it with the Discovery Channel from the bottom of the ocean. We, we our Spaceworks team, restored and preserved it. And so it's our property. We have several artifacts in our collection that are our property. Mm-hmm. Um, Others are on more of a a semi-permanent loan to us because of our efforts, for instance, with Apollo 13. Let me ask you a couple of more real brief questions about Mm -hmm. the evolution of the cosmosphere Mm because I want to leave plenty of time to get into what the cosmosphere is and does today. Sure. Uh, But a couple of leaps. So you went from the poultry building at the State Fair. You already mentioned that then she partnered with Hutch Community College Mm -hmm. and had something on campus. Then in 1980, a separate facility opened. I assume that was That's where the collection really began. Yet another Patty Mm -hmm. Carey. It was amazing. Arm arm twisting and, you know, smoothing. Right. And a huge community effort. I don't want to... um, to let anyone think it didn't it, it took Hutchinson mm-hmm. to make this place happen absolutely and I mean everyone we have people who have been members of the Cosmosphere since it began people who regularly make donations of maybe $50 a year but they've been doing it for 50 years so I think um, the passion that the community has for it is deep and so it was a group of community members and Patty 
that made the expansions happen along the way. And then 1997 was the Blackbird. Yes. yes. For listeners who haven't been here, if you have been here, you don't need to be reminded because there's no way you can walk (laughs) in and not notice it and not remember it. No, that happens. Are you serious? I'm so serious. People will go through the whole, so the museum's on the lower level. You have to walk downstairs to see the real collection, and they'll come up, and then they'll go to the box office and say, I never saw that SR-71 I heard you guys have, and it's hanging above their heads. Yes, that's incredible. So there's an SR-71 Blackbird Mm -hmm. suspended from the ceiling Mm -hmm. in the lobby. Yes. And you had to build the actual facility around it, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh Um, That's amazing that anybody could walk in and not see it. It is the most awesome, breathtaking thing to see when you come in, uh, almost close enough to touch. Yes. Well, and we were living in Hutchinson at the time, and I can remember when it arrived, you know, and it was a big deal that this huge spy plane was coming down 11th Street in Hutchinson. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's move into, you know, the Cosmosphere's mission today Mm -hmm. and what you have available here. Want to get some information, you know, on what the average tourist experience would be when they just show up and want to take a tour, what the education component is and what you're able to do with students, um, some of the programming and speakers. You know, there's so much more that goes on here than just some artifacts being behind glass on display. It's much more vibrant than that. It doesn't feel like a museum at all. Right. It feels like an experience. Um, I will make one observation the first time I came here as an adult uh, I'm you know science is honestly not my favorite my top passion mm-hmm. and so I knew I wanted to come but you know science not not a huge pull for me and what I realized immediately is that it's it's almost more history than it is science it's politics exactly. it's, it's big personalities it's it's you know world events and I was lost in these exhibits immediately, partly because of the artifacts and the science, but mostly is it is the American story and it's the history. Uh, so that was my wow moment just as much as, you know, seeing that SR-71 in the mm-hmm. lobby. But you choose where you want to start. Tell us a little bit about just the average tourist experience, um, all the education components that you do, and some of the speakers and research that gets facilitated. Sure. Well, first I want to just applaud you. Well, I guess that I am right there with you, so I agree. I, so, yay. I, as if you had said something I didn't agree with, I wouldn't be equally right. enthusiastic. But <laughs> that's exactly my story with the Cosmosphere. You know, my husband was the one who loves space. I just thought, hmm, that's interesting science and I'm not a a big science person either but it's the story that is still so relevant today so it's history that is absolutely critical that we remember because the fact is failure happens and it happened over and over and over and we use the failure as teaching moments and you know when you look at one of our artifacts is the um, Mercury Atlas capsule which the Mercury 7 astronauts were standing there when that capsule launched and the rocket blew up and the capsule came down in flaming shreds and standing there was Alan Shepard who knew that within months he'd be getting into a very similar capsule onto what, as he told the engineers, he hoped 
was a modified rocket. But they didn't stop and say, we need hazard pay or we need to call for a grand jury investigation. They worked the problem. And today we let problems overcome us and we try to eliminate any risk of failure from our children's lives and we're averse to it ourselves. And we need to remember that this great American story happened because of failure and our willingness to overcome it and get to the moon. So we did. And that's the story the museum tells. You're right. And the personalities involved are incredible. So the visitor who comes, and we have visitors who come from all over the world. Um, I'll just tell you real briefly because they come to Kansas, to the United States, to see the cosmosphere. Right. Not Kansas City, Kansas. No, exactly. And they came from Argentina, Belize, Denmark, Korea, Singapore, Sweden, Thailand, Wales, Paraguay. Last year, we had more than um, 42 foreign countries. And I found that the first week I was working here, there was a gentleman who was somewhat, our museum is confusing. A visitor can expect to be somewhat lost because there's (laughs) not a square corner in the cosmosphere. And so you um, kind of take some interesting turns and I noticed immediately that he had an Australian accent, and I said, oh, what brought you to the States? He said, oh, the Cosmosphere. He said, it's always been on my bucket list. How cool is that? And then they come from all over the United States as well just to see this story. So you need to spend four hours here minimum. Yes. <laughs> Kat, I, I have to tell you a couple of other things, too. You mentioned that you know everything is round and it's easy to get lost. <laughs> you know, I didn't get lost when I came here for the first time, but... And I have a horrific sense of direction, but I didn't get lost because it may not be uh, geographically, you know, (laughs) structurally. It's not linear, but the story is. But the story is. The history is. And that's what I did is simply follow the panels. And the history was what captured my interest in my heart. And just by following the chronology of the story... Mm-hmm. that gets you to the finish line, even if you couldn't have got there by looking up and getting there visually right. on your own. Right. Yes, it does. It just captivates you. And that is that is why people come, because this is the place in the world where you can see the story of the space race unfold, beginning with World War II. And oftentimes people don't get the connection of the German gallery, but it all started with rocketry. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage visitors to go to Dr. Goddard's lab first. We have live science demonstrations there, and you learn about liquid fuel and about how Dr. Goddard was one of the three fathers of rocketry who um, you know, actually saw a Saturn V rocket and, and recognized his ideas now in Germany's weapon of mass destruction, the first intercontinental ballistic missile, basically. And... Um, that was that's a sobering question to ask yourself as a visitor does war drive technology or does technology support war is you know was von braun a a war criminal well we think not those who understand the science that he contributed in the space where he was in history but many considered that he was and um without him and that group of german scientists who then came to the united states would we have had um, the same space program? And let's reflect for just a minute on some of the things you've talked about. You know, people so often think of the cosmosphere and they just think of space and, <laughs> and artifacts. 
And what have you led in with here already? Um, you've led in with what it means to the American story, the, the idea of building on failure after failure after failure and not being deterred and not being afraid of risk. I mean, that's not only an American story, that's a human story. Exactly. You've talked about ethics already mm -hmm. and, and the intersection between this technology and warfare and Werner von Braun and his work in Nazi Germany and then here and the gray areas involved in that. And so I just, I think it's so important for listeners to know, yes, if all you came here to do was to see the artifacts and, and you know, study things related to the science of it, it's a world-class experience, but it is so much more. Right. It's a humanities yeah. experience. It is. And it's great when educators who bring their classes here, um, you had mentioned you were one of the few kids in Kansas who didn't get to come here on a field trip. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, but I'm glad you came as an adult. Yeah, because, me too. Um, it, for kiddos who come, you know, I've met so many adults who say, oh, well, I came there in the third grade. You just don't get the significance of all of it. But if you have a great teacher, and oh my gosh, there are so many who come through here. They're teaching you in advance about that history and what to look for, or they're using the collection as writing prompts for English classes. And I think um, we made a conscious decision to support more education efforts in cross-curricular ways um, in about 2014. We had a task force uh, study the, because museum attendance is declining everywhere. It's an experience that we think that we can replicate in, uh, you know, in other ways, or we can look at things on the internet, and that's the next best thing to being there. Well, it's not at all. And you get that when you stand next to, like, the Apollo 13 command module, and you know those men's lives were at stake, and this is where they were. So, but the, the teaching that supports that is something that we can also do better than any place else. And because we have these amazing artifacts that teach lessons in physics, you and I were just visiting with two of our space, space educators who were talking about the things that children will, or not children, because a lot of them are teenagers mm -hmm. and we have adult camps too, but they'll put items in a wind tunnel to learn about the forces of drag and what does it take to fly. So, all of these lessons can combine when you're intentional about delivering them in a way that has certain objectives that we will not fail to present. We don't fail to talk about teamwork. And even if we aren't talking about it directly, we're demonstrating it about critical thinking, about communication. The communication between mission control and a spacecraft is life and death communication all the time. It still is today. The communication between the International Space Station and, you know, there's somebody in Johnson Space Center 24-7, 365 days a year that stays through hurricanes and floods because they're responsible for life above us right now in space. So all those lessons are so important. And then we can use that to convey math and technology and sciences so yeah well as long as we're talking about the student experience and i've just been hammering how much more it is than science but let's do take a minute to talk about the science and and the toys and the tools <laughs> and the experience you were kind enough to give me a, a behind the scenes tour of what all happens at the space camp here for the students 
uh, you know, a real life mission control. How cool is that? <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, the screens up on the wall, just like you'd see in Apollo 13 and mm-hmm. everybody at their stations with their own monitors and controlling, uh, you know, so much data or at least monitoring so much data. And uh, you guys, as always on, you know, you're always ahead, not behind. So America has switched from the space shuttle program to privately powered rockets. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your change here. We made that change ourselves. So um, previously, for more than 30 years, our um, camp experience had been built around mission control and a mission. And so we had a simulator um, that was a shuttle era simulator. This was called Falcon 2. And it had hydraulics and all of the the, um, capsule components that enabled people to feel, even adults who come to adult space camp, feel like they're running a real mission. But the technology was outdated. Our um, SpaceWorks team had poured all of the um, passion and promise they could into very old software. So it was time for it to end anyway, not to mention the fact that we don't have a space shuttle program anymore. So we are on the brink of everything new in space, and we're able to be there for our students now. We have a craft, um, the how did we decide we're supposed to pronounce it? Australis. <laughs> it, my impression was it depends on who you ask, even at the Cosmosphere. Yes. It's our brand new capsule, right. so we have to get into the hang of it. Um, but it's part of our Ad Astra um, uh, camp experience that enables students to get into a uh, a spacecraft that is modeled on an Orion space capsule. And watching the Dragon launch um, earlier, well, I guess, yeah, earlier this month, uh, it was so fun because the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, that looks like our capsule. I should have been thinking, of course, our capsule looks like that. Mm -hmm. But it has the touch screens and the same kind of environment. Um, Mission Control also got an upgrade in not only the software, but the monitors and for those maybe who are listening who've had some kind of brush with our camp experience those mission control monitors that they're sitting at are authentic consoles from the back room at mission control at johnson space center so now they've all been retrofitted with completely new technology so it looks like a mission control experience not just like the apollo program but like um when they were launching the InSight lander for Mars, it's students have an opportunity to experience something like they don't anywhere else in the world. And again, where is it? Hutchinson, Kansas. Yeah. So they each are assigned a role in mission control. They're assigned a role in the crew. It's um, just a great experience. And we fold in so many different levels um, of camps into that. You know, some are just uh, orbiting. Some are docking with the ISS, which we have a simulation of that. We have a simulation of a lunar lander, which you saw briefly. So um, it's a great way to teach the science, but show them how the skills are relevant today. Yeah, and I'll add one more life lesson on there, too. It is no different than getting your kids involved in athletics and the the teamwork component is huge you know you've got all these students from all different places coming together sort of randomly assigned and they've all got their own responsibility and they all have to produce for the team to thrive 
yeah, it's for the a, team to survive. Oh, yeah, survive, not thrive. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. yeah, it is. It's just amazing. Uh, it's mind blowing, honestly, when mm-hmm. you took me back there the tour, and even then, I didn't realize that those machines actually come from Johnson. They're actual right, right. NASA mission control stations. That's that's crazy. Yeah, you know, I I want to just briefly sidetrack and make sure that everybody realizes that the Cosmosphere isn't just a great space museum and international science education center. It also has a component called SpaceWorks, and it's technicians and artists and craftsmen that you wouldn't believe who create world-class replicas, but also do significant preservation, um, restoration and preservation. We're really the number one stop for restoration of spacecrafts, and that, or spacecraft rather, that is the call that NASA tells other people to make. When so they need other that museums kind of oh, are... all over. Yeah. It's so interesting. And so when it came time for historic mission control at Johnson Space Center to be restored, which was an effort that concluded last year at the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing, they came to us to restore those consoles. And so for a time um, in 2018 and 2019, we had those consoles in our SpaceWorks warehouse. And wow. you, just having the experience of being at the same place where Charlie Duke was standing when he heard the words, the eagle has landed. And just... Gives you you goosebumps. It does. And the whole thing was done so beautifully um, by Johnson Space Center and the... um, Oh, gosh. The the preservation for... The Trust for Historic Preservation. I just completely screwed that up. But several different federal entities were involved. And it is like a time capsule now. So when people get to see Johnson Space Center and see Historic Mission Control, they're looking at coffee cups and and ashtrays. Of course, the whole place was full of smoke all the time. <laughs> and it looks like somebody got up from their desk in 1967 or 69 and, and was coming back. You know, there's sweaters on the chairs. It's just neat. Yeah, that's awesome. So we were a part of that. We have been um, a part of... The restoration of the F1 engines that Jeff Bezos recovered just a few years ago, and it's exciting to to be part of that story. Um, and yet, no one guesses that it all comes from Hutchinson, Kansas. It's sort of fun and it's sort of annoying. It is both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something that you're very proud of, and you can't wait to tell people that's right, right here in Hutchinson, Kansas. But on the other hand shouldn't have to justify why it's in Hutchinson, Kansas. Right? Yeah. I know. And and people just look like at you. Well, I have a brief story, a personal experience. I was at the Museum, Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington, which, of course, is huge. But their, their space exhibit really pales in comparison to the Cosmospheres. But I wanted to see it in person. I just had a few minutes. And we had um, just installed in as a temporary exhibit for them, some of the F1 engines that we'd restored here. And then we also create displays. For instance, the Cosmosphere did all of the exhibitry and displays for Doc's Friends hangar in Wichita for the B-29. So that's all Cosmosphere work from the design of how it went together to the cases themselves. And gosh, we could do a whole other podcast on Doc. Oh, you definitely need to. It's amazing. So anyway, I walk into the Museum of Flight. I'm in a hurry. This wonderful docent stops me and says, can I help you find anything? I said, yes, sir. I'd like to see your 
um, your Apollo gallery? And he said, oh, it's, it's over here. And um, he said, so you know a little something about space? I said, oh, very little something. And he said, well, make sure then that you check out the F1 engines. You know, we, we have them on exhibit, and they were the Saturn V engines that got manned to the moon. And I said, well, actually, I'm very familiar with those. The company that I work with did the restoration and preservation of the engines. And he said, oh, where do you work? I said, in Hutchinson, Kansas. He said, no, 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 no. These are F1 engines, and <laughs> Jeff Bezos paid to have them restored. I said, yes, sir, and he hired the technicians at Spaceworks in Hutchinson, Kansas to do that. And he said, oh, well, that's interesting, but you've got to see how they were displayed. I said, yes, we also created the display. And he said, Hutchinson, Kansas, and he just kind of shook his head and walked off. He just couldn't believe yeah. And that's, you know, all of us who live in this great state. Yes. It is a half get, gratifying, half annoying. It is yeah. because you think, oh, you know, it's our secret. Yep. We know who we are. Yeah. But in cases like that, you want the world to know. And we certainly want all Kansans to know because for students who come through here, they need to see themselves in everything we do. If they are a great welder or, a, a, you know, great at running a router, there's a future for them at the Cosmosphere because that's what it takes to keep bringing the story of space exploration to life. And we have international touring exhibits that SpaceWorks is responsible for. We've touched literally every other space museum in the United States. Well, that is a pretty good segue, too, talking about all this work that comes from outside and comes to the Cosmosphere. I've got a couple other things I want to ask you about and then a couple of fun wow questions at the end before okay. we wrap up but I assume the economic impact to the community from the Cosmosphere has to be sizable. It is. Um, a KU School of um, Business did uh, an economic impact study I believe in 2013 or 2014 and it's not just the the sales tax generated on you know or the tickets or the fact that some people spend the night in a hotel it's that they eat here you know they they gas their cars up here they may have some car issue and and need help while they're here all those factors go into the economic impact of any major attraction but this is the greatest attraction in the state of kansas and it's um not arrogant to say that it's a fact and we also share in the community um the attraction mecca that's created by having stratica here which mm -hmm. is an underground salt museum that could and be another entire separate podcast it is we are yeah. so lucky and we have the state fair here so of that i would say that the cosmosphere does drive some of that tourism engine but I think we are all aware that um, the same tide really does lift all boats in that case, and it's great to work together. We have a discount with Stratica. If you buy our mission pass, you get $5 off there, and it's a great reason to come spend two days in Hutchinson because you want a day in both places. Yeah. There's no place else in the like sit in the northern hemisphere that's no, an exaggeration it's a good thing i don't do marketing for stratica <laughs> it's the only place in the united states you can travel more than 600 feet below the earth into what was a working salt mine yeah so yeah and all 
right here in right Hutchinson, here. Kansas. In Kansas, yay. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. A couple of, of closing questions here. Of all the things you have, we've talked about the Apollo 13 capsule and the SR-71. Um, what do you think is the most popular exhibit? Probably the most popular is generally the Apollo 13 because if someone doesn't understand science or doesn't love space, they at least think that Tom Hanks is Jim Lovell and they've seen the movie or they watch the movie before they come. But there's also a whole generation, Scott, who doesn't remember that movie because it was before they were born. Right. And I have to remember that. We have to remember <laughs> that people don't know that there was a Mercury, then a Gemini, then an Apollo program. People don't know really that the Apollo program happened beyond, maybe they know a little bit about the moon landing. So the Apollo 13 at least has that kind of um, power to resonate with people. But I think right now we have, as you walked past in the lobby, the Liberty Bell 7 is home. And the fact that we have the Mercury Liberty Bell 7, the Gemini 10, and the Apollo 13 in our collection, and then that you can compare and contrast those to a flown Vostok from the Soviet Union that was the same era as the Mercury program and the Vostok, which was the Gemini. You can see all that together is important for people. And I think that's the significance they find. And right now, the Liberty Bell 7 is in the lobby because it has been um, on tour, and it's home. And it is amazing. You would think we had a rock star in our midst. Our, our Facebook page is just blowing up over it. And even when it wasn't here, I would say that we get probably two or three emails a week saying, hey, when's LB7 coming back? So right now it may be even eclipsing the Apollo 13 for popularity. That's very cool. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Right, yeah. exactly. Well, a couple of final questions here I want to ask, um, and this one hopefully is a fun one to answer. What is your favorite part? You know, you did share your job title at my request, but I really just think of you as an ambassador. I mean, oh. you are an ambassador for the Cosmosphere. Well, thank you. What's your favorite part? What, and I, you appear to love it all, which is awesome. I do awesome. love it all. But what is your favorite thing about getting to be an ambassador for the Cosmosphere? I think that you hit it on the head initially. It's, it's just the stories. And I had a gentleman say once, um, well, that's an added anecdote. Do you have data? We do not have hard data on where all the students who are impacted by the Cosmosphere go and what they do. But we have some great stories that you can find online and in our newsletters because every time we feature former campers well they've gone on to do amazing things some of them do amazing things in the medical profession some of them are just better parents because of the communication skills they gained here but they still all remember coming here and what a difference it made and students there was um a student from Clay Center who came here her junior year of high school for uh, an educational experience and went back and decided to take physics her senior year. In fact, a large percentage of them that came here, I think six students, but that's Clay Center, so everything is relative. Mm -hmm. One class decided to go ahead and sign up for physics because they understood the relevance of that having visited the Cosmosphere. And she went on to KU School of Engineering to get her degree in astrophysics. 
And would that have happened without the Cosmosphere? Maybe so. But probably not. It's that it reveals a whole new world to people. You know, kids from Western Kansas who might not get to rub elbows with engineers very often come figure out how that is applicable. Or maybe they are that student who's a great welder and then can stand by the F1 engines and say, wow, somebody's welds held. You know, it it <laughs> launched the Saturn V. It fell, penetrated the ocean floor with such force that it popped out of the bottom of the ocean like cork when it was retrieved. And the rivets and welds are still strong. Yeah. So it's not just for gifted students. It's not just for people who remember the space area. It's truly for everyone. And it's in the middle of Kansas and in the middle of the country because we deserve it. Yeah. Well, final question for you. Um, what does the future hold for the Cosmosphere? Are there uh, any plans that you're at liberty to share? Are <laughs> things coming in the future or um, even just trends that you're noticing that are impactful to the visitor and the education experience? Anything you want to share about sure. what you see ahead? Well, of course, um, we had a great plan for 2020 and um, some really exciting initiatives that we were on the brink of launching. As I said um, to you earlier, we had our new Cosmo Kids area, which is a complete interactive, wonderful area for, for families with children probably two to seven is our target age. Kids that may not appreciate all of the words of a museum still get to have a space experience there. And that was open a whole day before we had to close due to COVID-19. Mm. And so we were closed from March 17th to May 22nd. So quite honestly, um, this will be recovery summer for us. Just proving to people that we are making this a very safe um, space experience that uh, we are a safe space, but you have um, all kinds of precautions in place here, and we work very closely with our public health officials at the county level to make sure that we're complying with all their guidelines. So right now we just want visitors to come back. The first day when we were open again, it was just like life breathed into the building again. I mean, this was this is a very very this is a, over a hundred thousand square feet of space. It needs people in it. It needs the voices of children getting to know each other at camp. You know they come in as strangers from, as I was saying earlier, thirty five states, and then suddenly they're best friends at the end of the week. You need all of that energy in this place. So goal one, bring back the energy, bring back the power of the cosmosphere because it, without those visitors and those experiences, we aren't fulfilling our mission. Um, we do have a rescheduled event for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13 that's going to be happening in November. So that's a big deal for this year. Um, we have more to do as far as the um, new area that I just mentioned. That's part of our ongoing revitalization campaign. We have a new Bell, um, X, X plane gallery, the Bell X1 is the cornerstone of that exhibit and is showcased in a whole new way. You can now look down into the cockpit. You have to see it to understand how that happens, so come see us. Um, and Chuck Yeager tweeted about how cool he thought it was that the Cosmosphere was making that possible. So. And how cool is it when Chuck Yeager tweets about you? I That's know. That's awesome. It is. And, you know, I have to, I, I do get a little hung up on that sometimes. And I also take for granted, like, 
I earlier this year was at home and got a call and hung up and um, Craig said, well, well, what was that? And I said, well, that was Jim Lovell. And he was like, you can't just sit there and say, <laughs> I just got off the phone with Jim Lovell. <laughs> it's a bigger deal than that. It you is. can't just and get off the phone I with had, Jim Lovell. But oh my gosh, you know, they love us, <laughs> the, the astronauts from that era. So, yeah. um, but we are proud that they're coming back for the Apollo 13. We have um, hopes of moving on to restore our galleries, one gallery at a time, and that's the work that I do. But honestly, that took a bit of a backseat to a nation that just needs to recover and make sure that everyone has a safe home and enough to eat right now following what we've been through together. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Well, that is a great picture of the future uh, as far as I'm concerned because you're right I mean the the energy that is normally here pre-COVID is is palpable right Uh, those that want more information website is cosmo.org and we will be delivering more of this virtually that was one thing that COVID taught us Mm -hmm. was how to bring the museum to people so do visit us um, on social media as well Facebook we have some fun micro tours of the museum with our CEO and we'll be bringing a lot more of that to folks. So very cool. It is the next best thing to being here, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but well, I want you to come see it. I was just going to say, if you can't be here, it's a it's a as good a substitute as you can hope for. Exactly. Well, Mimi Meredith with the Kansas Cosmosphere, thank you so much for making time to be with us today thank and you, share Scott. this story. Absolutely. Oh gosh, yes, it was fun. And, and listeners, if you have not been here. Um, Put it on your travel itinerary, and Mimi touched on this earlier. If you have been here, but it was only as a student, and you probably didn't grab uh, or, or grip the the depth of what they have here to be learned across so many disciplines, uh, it's a one of a kind experience uh, right here in Hutchinson, Kansas. So, thank you for tuning in, listeners, to the BHL podcast, and we look forward to having you again with us on the next episode.